Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day, this is Boris Karpa. Welcome to New Books and Military History. We have with us today a guest who is somewhat unusual for our show. We have Carlo Parisi, who is uh, many things. He is a school teacher. He is a f- he is a fencing master. He uh, he has been studying historic European martial arts for twenty years. He is a captain of the of the Italian Hema team. He has competed in several international martial arts tournaments, and he also teaches historic European martial arts. And we are here to talk about his new, his new book, his first book, Dagger Fencing, the Italian School. Carlo, I am very pleased to have you on our show. Hi, Boris. Very pleased to be here. You know, this uh, show, is uh, we have certain traditions, and one of the things we always ask, we always ask every author why they, they choose to write this show, the whatever book, and in your case, of course, you are a very uh, somewhat famous f- uh, fencing teacher, and you've, I've seen many of your YouTubes where you explain how to do different exercises, but you're mostly famous about uh, what you have done with swords, uh, with uh, rapier, with sabers. So how have you come around to write a book about daggers? Uh, I chose the subject, the dagger, because it wasn't a subject that had been studied in depth and uh, there were no sources available uh, for the English-speaking uh, public. Uh, at the time, most of what uh, was available was uh, about longsword, or, if we consider daggers, uh, rondel daggers, the knightly rondel dagger, and also um, empty end against dagger. There was no uh, specific work on the cut and thrust dagger of the Renaissance time uh, that could be applied with uh, uh, Cinque Dea, Mano Sinistra, uh, the Mangosh, uh, Stiletto, and the um, Storta. So the various uh, daggers that were worn daily um, in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance period. Uh, so I thought it would be interesting to fill this gap also because uh, this is a, a daily carry weapon of the time. So a lot of people uh, had daggers on their belt. And uh, a study on daggers and their use uh, helps understanding the daily life of the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance, and even the Baroque period. So I decided to translate the sources, which thankfully uh, were available uh, either because they were uh, online in PDF, but also because some researchers, uh, especially the guys from the uh, Achille Marozzo School, like Marco Lu- Ruboli, uh, Luca Cesari, Jacopo Venni, had been working on the sources and published them in Italian, but they weren't available for the general public in English. So I isolated the dagger parts, uh, commented them, trans- uh, translated them, and interpreted them. Then I added my own drawings. Uh, to help the reader understand what the techniques uh, are about. 
well, this is some very insightful stuff you're telling us. And, you know, as you might have noticed from the title of the show, it says the new books on military history. It's not uh, so much a martial arts show, it's a history show. So um, I am a historian. Um, uh, my background is in 19th century history, and I also, of course, practice martial arts. I have done before different martial arts. I am now studying HEMA. Uh, although not dagger, uh, mostly it is longsword and uh, sword and buckler, which I study. But most people are not like me. Most people who are historians, you know, they will sit in their, uh, in their office, they will read books about these eras, they will go to the archive to work with the historical sources. So maybe you can tell people... What is the value to somebody who's studying history, who wants to learn about the past? Can you explain the value of studying historic European martial arts, other historic martial arts? What is the value to a historian of studying these things? Uh, I think that the techniques uh, applied in martial arts uh, help understanding the context in which the techniques uh, were used. If you consider uh, dagger manuals, and uh, fencing manuals in general, but I'm talking about daggers mainly in my book. So if you consider their use, you understand uh, better the context of their use. Uh, if we start from the rondel dagger, you see that their use is mainly illustrated for the judicial duel, um, armored combat, or street self-defense. Why is it so? Uh, it is the, um, the area of application of these weapons in their time. The judicial duel was still a reality, and uh, it remained in use uh, up until the Council of Trent. Then you see an evolution in fencing and you see an evolution in dagger fencing as well. Why? Because the Council of Trent uh, reformed um, several aspects of uh, life in the Catholic uh, area. One of them is the judicial duel, which basically disappeared. So at this time, uh, fencing focuses on the concept of life preservation rather than honor preservation uh, and self-defense in general. You see a specifically uh, defensive attitude, which is also usually explained in the preface of a manual uh, to better blend in with the uh, moral and religious context of the time in which the manual was written and published. Uh, this is an aspect that is very um, evident if you look into books prefaces. You actually didn't want your book to end up in the list of forbidden books, uh, which could easily happen with a book that deals with violence. And uh, in my opinion, the Council of Trent uh, is a turning point for fencing. And uh, so you see through the techniques and their presentation, the evolution of the context, uh, especially in the uh, philosophical and uh, moral sense. Now, the fencing master is a master of defense. And his purpose is to uh, teach how to preserve one's life, not uh, to teach you how to preserve uh, your honor if challenged, because there is no more uh, a legal framework for uh, violence application in the civilian context. Uh, there is still the moral framework of uh, war, but not, uh, not a civilian framework, uh, legally speaking, for violence. So violence can be justified 
only as a means to preserve one's life. And the um, fencing manuals reflect this. If you look at the um, at the dagger techniques that I illustrate in my book, basically all of them start with the defense. The good guy is never attacking first. So you are morally expected to fight to preserve your uh, life and health. And this shows in the way fencing is taught. Well, this allows me to talk about something which I think in our audience everybody knows, even if they are not in martial arts, they are not military historians, everybody has read Shakespeare, uh, Romeo and Juliet, you know, it starts, there are these two groups of people, you know, these, these gangs of servants who are in the streets of Verona, yes? And of course, are you biting your thumb at me, one of them says, and of course they start to fight, yes? Sorry? As this... Uh, if you you have you remember Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet, yeah, the opening scene is a street fight. Yes, it, it, these two groups of people who are you know walking in the streets and there are a minor insult and they escalate very rapidly and very soon uh, uh, the father of the, the family is uh, asking you know bring me my longsword, and so we really. Uh, can you maybe tell us a little bit more about uh, how interpersonal violence happened in Renaissance Italy, and you know how, how uh, what, in what roles these were daggers were used at the time? Yes, uh, the way I see it, there are uh, several different uh, contexts for street violence and dagger use in general. The first we have already mentioned is the judicial duel, which is a uh, legal framework that is tied to the medieval mentality. Uh, The second is street crime, plain and simple. We see some uh, very interesting examples of uh, street violence in the life of Benvenuto Cellini. Uh, Messer Benvenuto describes some of his own crimes, uh, the way uh, he committed them. And his approach was very straightforward when he he, uh, felt he had to assault someone. He often preferred to draw his dagger, usually a storta, and uh, assault fiercely his victim. And he has done it uh, several times. He also includes a case of uh, backstabbing. So crime was was a reality in the street of the Renaissance Italy. And And basically, you had to be able to react to it. Also, uh, we have a a space in uh, uh, late medieval uh, and uh, Renaissance history uh, for political assassination. Uh, There is a case that, that summarizes this practice, and it is the Conjura dei Pazzi, in which... um, Giuliano and Lorenzo de' Medici were fiercely assaulted um, and uh, uh, Giuliano lost his life and Lorenzo almost uh, lost his life. Uh, Unfortunately, at the time, violence was a a political practice. And when you had a a political uh, opponent, Killing him was a viable political option. Uh, Then we have war. And um, if we consider Italian history of the late Middle Ages and Renaissance period and the Baroque period, we see uh, a whole series of um, long conflicts. First, we have a long conflict between Milan and Venice. Uh, This conflict lasts until the Peace of Lodi. At the time of the Peace of Lodi, 
uh, a League of uh, uh, Regional States was formed to maintain peace and balance. Lorenzo de' Medici was the architect of this uh, balance and peace. Uh, then, however, uh, 40 years later, we start, uh, we see the beginning of a new long season of wars, which lasts uh, from the um, Charles VIII of France expedition uh, in 1494 up until the peace of Cateau-Cambrésis in 1559. Uh, during this period, we see a new type of warfare. Uh, the armies have changed. So if in the uh, wars between the regional states, we see still the knightly model applied, the late medieval model applied with uh, uh, some innovations, uh, these new seasons of uh, war, this new season of wars, sorry, uh, has some interesting new aspects, uh, beginning with the role of the infantry or the reborn infantries of Europe and the um, great number of soldiers involved in the expeditions. And uh, we see also the involvement of the modern state armies so there is a new model of state and a new model of army in which the infantry has a new and important role, uh, which shows again in the evolution of daggers. Uh, with, the, uh, with this new model, uh, the focus goes from the uh, rondel knightly dagger that was the main instrument of dagger fencing uh, before, uh, to the pugnale bolognese and the um, similar weapons, which are uh, um, short swords, basically, uh, short cut and thrust swords, which are better suited to the necessity of the infantry of the, the newborn infantry. Then uh, we see again an evolution because uh, between the peace of Cateau-Cambrésis to 1730, uh, to 1713, sorry, um, we have uh, a new season. It's the season of the Spanish domination in uh, fencing is more oriented, in my opinion, toward um, civilian self-defense and confrontation. Um, it's the time of the rapier. It's a period of the rapier of a street fight because, of course, there is no uh, judicial duel uh, allowed, which doesn't mean, though, that uh, dueling disappears. On the contrary, uh, dueling uh, becomes easier to organize. So it can happen on the spot, uh, out of uh, rage, uh, out of a street altercation. And it's also a way to show one's, uh, uh, one's courage, uh, one's, um, uh, one's personal uh, pride. Uh, so, in this period of time, the swords evolve and the daggers evolve. Uh, the dagger used to be a backup weapon of the night. Then it became a daily carry weapon for the uh, soldier, uh, for the uh, militia men and uh, also for the civilian. Now the dagger evolves and becomes a secondary weapon that is used in, often in conjunction with the sword. You would draw your dagger 
alone only if you don't have time to draw the sword as well or if you are caught without the sword or if you are um, a uh, lower class person and you don't own a sword. The dagger so uh, becomes even more a form of short sword and its method of use uh, is uh, again even more similar to that the sword. The daggers acquire pairing ability because it is it is a specialized armorless street fighting tool now because it has to blend in into civilian life and uh, civilian fights. Uh, so dagger evolution and the evolution of dagger methods reflects in a way um, daily life evolution, social violence evolution and warfare evolution. Well, because this is a military history channel, uh, I need to ask a little bit. You said uh, the daggers were also also used in war, and you know when we talk about uh, war in the Renaissance, we uh, think, and of course in the Middle Ages, uh, there are no, no guns yet, but uh, at first there are, of course, pikes and other infantry weapons, and of course the knights have uh, lances and they have swords and horses. And later on, guns also appear. So how does a dagger come in in, in this sort of uh, big fight? Uh, the dagger is a um, backup weapon, which is very well suited to close combat. Um, uh, the pikeman, but also the knight, uh, carry a dagger, because carrying one is not much effort, but it can come handy when the, when the fight gets close. Uh, also, the dagger can assist swordsmanship. Um, sword and dagger is a technique, a system of its own. Uh, you see the evolution from uh, the armor-defeating dagger of the late Middle Ages, uh, to the sword-assisting dagger of the Renaissance, which can be used as a cut-and-thrust weapon in clones combat or in its own right. And I'm talking about the Cinque Dea, the Storta, the Pugnale Bolognese. Then you see the, um, the Mengosh for the rapier, the, the left-hand dagger for the rapier. Now you have a specialized instrument that is meant to parry, trap, and bind swords. Uh, and uh, also, you see the birth of the stiletto. The stiletto is a weapon that is meant uh, to be concealed, uh, to be hidden. So it can be used in surprise attacks, or you can have it as a weapon in a context that is not uh, permissive. Toward, uh, that is not permissive uh, when it comes to weapon carry. And uh, so these are the main instruments. The Rondel Knightly Dagger, the Pugnale Bolognese, Cinque Dea and Storta, which is a single-edged um, big knife that uh, can have the size of a dagger. Then you have the Mengosh, and the stiletto, and all of them see uh, application in warfare because they are uh, common backup weapons that can be carried easily and used in close space, and also are very, very common in civilian life at that time because not everybody could wear a sword and uh, uh, not everywhere it was allowed to wear a sword. On the other hand, we must say that in some, in some cities uh, it was a dagger that was not allowed. Uh, I think Rome uh, is an example 
Rome was more permissive toward swords than uh, toward uh, daggers. But usually, dagger was a, a common tool, either in civilian life uh, and in warfare, because it was the last resort weapon and the most useful in clothes. Uh, its, uh, its technique evolves to match the new context. So um, during its evolution, it goes from a uh, thrusting weapon to be used against armor uh, to a cut and thrust weapon that, that can be used uh, quickly uh, against armorless opponents but also against lightly armored opponents to a specialized fencing tool that uh, assists the sword to a conciliable tool, the stiletto, that can be used, uh, unfortunately, in acts of uh, crime and political uh, crime. So it blends in in several ways, some of which are quite sinister. If we think about uh, the 1500 uh, political history, we see several cases in which, unfortunately, the short blades fits in. Not only the conjura dei pazzi, but if I remember correctly, there are, uh, uh, there are cases of... Uh, dagger deployment even in French history such as the wars of the three Heinrichs uh, during the uh, French uh, wars of uh, religion some of, uh, of the disputes were settled by assassination so the dagger could become a, a turning point uh, tool for uh, political life in the in the uh, 1500, 1500, and 1600 actually. So it fits in warfare, and also it fits in the, uh, political disputes. Well, Carlo, I would like to ask a little bit. Although, as I said, this is a history show, no, uh, so, uh, not very much a martial arts show. But I do have some martial arts training. I've even trained some a little, a tiny bit with a rondel dagger. So I know it is nothing like uh, modern knives. It is very different in its in the way it is used. It is very different in its shape. Can you maybe explain a little bit to? those of our listeners who are not uh, like you and me in, in military history in martial, in martial arts, can you maybe explain what are the differences between the daggers, uh, especially the rondel dagger and the other ones which are in your book, and the, the knives which we see today? Uh, yes, uh, the dagger is a specialized fighting instrument. Uh, it is not a um, it is not a tool. You can use it as a tool, but it uh, it is not its nature. Uh, so uh, it was common uh, at the time to have both a fighting dagger and a working knife. Uh, the dagger was not expected to be used as a tool. It is only a, uh, a fighting tool, and uh, either it is a specialized piercing weapon uh, with limited cutting capacity, or if it is a cut and thrust weapon, often it has two edges. Uh, it is fast and handy, so uh, it can be used um to the best effect in fencing actions and therefore its uh, structure is not fit for hard work or the uh, carving type for that you would want a, a working knife but at the time it wasn't a problem because people were usually carrying both especially in outdoor life that they they would use the dagger to defend themselves and the knife 
for um, daily tasks. Uh, the modern knife is, in my opinion, with exceptions, of course, um, a compromise. Uh, if we look at uh, weapons such as the K-Bar, they, they want to be both a uh, weapon and uh, a survival tool. Why is it so? Because in uh, modern military life, uh, the firearm is more important. So the blade has to be uh, small and uh, has to blend in uh, with, uh, with modern military life and has to um, fulfill uh, several, several tasks. Uh, in, in my own lifestyle, a, a dagger wouldn't fit in at all <laughs> if i if i actually need a blade it's a bushcraft knife for woodworking uh, and garden tasks so um the, the blade fits the the context uh, if i was uh, left with a single blade my choice would actually be a, a bushcraft knife not a dagger, not a military knife. Uh, so the modern knife is either a tool that can uh, be used as a weapon, or if we are talking about street self-defense knives, which in my country actually uh, cannot be carried at all, uh, they are small weapons that can be concealed uh, can, and are to be deployed uh, in, uh, in an emergency. But if we consider Italy, uh, the knife is either a, collecting, uh, a collector's item or a hunting, uh, an hunting tool, a tool used by the hunter, or a working tool. Uh, there is no legal use of the uh, knife in the civilian life outside work. Uh, the knife has its place in the army where it is a, a working tool and a defensive tool. This is my understanding of modern knife. I don't fancy myself an expert in modern knives. But this is my understanding of it. Now, the knife fits in the civilian life mainly for its working utility. I use knives daily in my home, but I use them uh, work wood or other materials. And hopefully it stays this way for all of us. <laughs> Nobody wants to be in a, a situation where they have to, you know, be in a violent encounter with someone. And I'd just like to add to what you've said, that the, the last dagger, which was I still think still used militarily, is of course the Fairbairn Sykes dagger, which turned up during the Second World War. But of course it was still very, very small. It was uh, so yes, much. The uh, yes, do go on. Uh, the the Fairman Sykes is, in my opinion, the exception because it is a specialized weapon. And from this, I would like to ask, we talked a little bit about how the daggers themselves evolved, how the martial arts evolved. But also, I would like to... I would like you to tell us a little bit about how the teaching uh, these art of these arts evolved. How how people how did a person who lived in Verona in the fifteenth century, somebody in the Renaissance era, how would they go about learning uh, martial arts? How did this happen at the time? Uh, so my understanding of the matter uh, is, is this: uh, at first, uh, we see that the martial arts uh, fit within inside the um, medieval structured society uh, uh, which we call the società tripartita uh, the concept uh, of uh, adalberone of uh, laon so uh, in the um, in the middle ages uh, society was divided in uh, specific orders and uh, not everybody had, a, had, a, had the right 
to um, get martial training. Martial training was mainly um, for the nightly elite and for the soldiers who worked for the uh, nightly elite, for the knights and the noblemen. Uh, it was a specific job to, um, to fight. Not everybody was involved. So um, it was, a, a, in my opinion, martial training was an elite matter at first. But then a social mobility happened during the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Uh, I think that the first who um, got access to martial training outside the elite were merchants. Uh, this is my understanding, because uh, merchants would um, travel in, in dangerous places and could be attack, uh, attacked. So uh, they became a social elite of their own. With time and with the uh, political evolution of the state in Europe, and uh, with the uh, advent of the civilian use of the blade, uh, of the sword and uh, the dagger, um, the fencing master had a broader audience, and the modern fencing school was born. Um, however, fencing masters could still have a another job. Uh, if we consider Marozzo, for example, uh, he had a secondary job. He, uh, if I understand it correctly, he was producing silk. Uh, and also uh, Filippo Vadi had another job. But uh, the job of the fencing master was uh, becoming uh, less elite-oriented and more uh, mass-oriented especially in the time of the judicial duel, when uh, somebody could be challenged and had the necessity to learn fencing quickly. Later on, it became the, uh, the job of a self-defense instructor in a context in which weapons uh, had the lead over, uh, over empty hands. So, uh, the sword and the dagger became self-defense instruments, uh, instruments of life uh, preservation. Then we see another evolution. Um, the fencing school becomes uh, the place for the teaching of a formalized way of fighting uh, just uh, let just let me uh, interrupt you for a second around which time do the fencing schools appear the first the formal fencing schools uh, it is my understanding that the uh, period to be considered is the 1500 but uh, we know that people like marozzo who had a fencing school had been studying with other masters. So uh, I wouldn't make a clear cut in this regard. But uh, the, the 1500 sees the birth of the uh, big fencing schools, in my opinion, and also um, due to the uh, evolution and the diffusion of the press, uh, the birth of the um, mass, uh, the mass-produced fencing manual. If you, if you allow me to to say uh, something exaggerated, uh, because of course uh, fencing manual existed even before, but now uh, they become a good that is available to a greater number of people. Fencing is available to a greater number of people, and the fencing manual is uh, uh, available to a greater number of people. We are no longer talking about uh, manuscripts, but we are talking about um, books that are uh, that can be printed uh, in greater numbers. So 
there is a new fencing subject and uh, the fencing subject uh, has uh, good tools uh, good tools available to him from the foil meant uh, as a uh, non uh, dangerous reproduction of a of a fighting sword to the fencing manual to the lessons of the of a fencing master uh, then a newer evolution happened um, when the uh, small sword and the uh, fencing foil appeared now we have a mo- even more uh, formalized society and uh, uh, fencing reflects uh, reflects uh, this evolution because fencing in the foil and small sword era uh, becomes even more formalized. Uh, the rule set changes, so we have rules such as the ones we see applied in Olympian fencing today, and the practice of fencing is taught. So. Uh, so that um, you uh, respect certain uh, rules of engagement. Uh, Then we see another evolution yet, which in my personal opinion is more uh, related to the uh, Congress of Vienna and the restoration, what we call the Restaurazione. So in the 1800s, because of the uh, necessities of uh, social order, because of the necessities to prevent uh, new outbreaks of uh, revolution after the French Revolution and uh, the um, birth of uh, the small Italian republics and the Italian kingdom, Uh, temporarily speaking, of course, Um, because of of these uh, necessities and because also because of the uh, new role of the middle class uh, and the desire to set aside the symbols of power of the older nobility, the uh, weapons that were uh, commonly, openly carried gradually disappear from sight. Now uh, we see the birth of the uh, knife schools, the regional knives uh, schools, uh, and the birth of the stick fencing school. Uh, The walking stick becomes a self-defense weapon Uh, used by the gentleman instead of the sword, because the sword sword was not socially accepted anymore, in my opinion, especially in the um, Italian area that was uh, mainly controlled by Austria. Uh, There were specific laws uh, restricting the possession and carrying of uh, bladed weapons. So uh, the gentleman would use the stick, whereas um, in the 1800s, the knife culture spread. Uh, New fencing schools were born. Uh, Of course, they weren't official fencing schools. Uh, that taught the use of the knife with regional preferences. So we see the Pugliese school, we see the Sicilian school, we see the Calabrese school, the Naples school. Um, The 19th century saw the birth of a new way of uh, fencing with a shorter weapon, but also saw the birth of the... uh, stick, the walking stick fencing style, which is mainly based uh, on the saber. Well, from this we can move on to something which, um, just briefly, because time is an issue here, um, just briefly I would like you to touch on 
can you tell us we we started with this and I'd like to circle bit, uh, circle back a little bit. Can you tell us about how people study these historical techniques today? How today is the study is used to learn more about the past? Okay, uh, so in my opinion, there are uh, three main uh, tools that we can use today to reconstruct. Uh, historical martial arts. The first is modern sport fencing, especially if you consider uh, the technique and manuals up until the 50s and 60s, because those methods were still meant uh, for uh, dual as well as competition. The core of the techniques is basically the same. The second instrument is the uh, interpretation and the study of written sources of the past. So the fencing manuals of the past, which have been in the last decades found, uh, studied, translated and published and made available to the general public. Uh, these uh, written sources are the core of the historical side of historical European martial arts. But there is a third important aspect, and it is the study of historical weapons and fencing gear. I have the luck of being the um, of studying in a museum, my fencing master Elena Merlin is the curator of a fencing museum here in northern Italy. So, uh, studying historical samples of fighting sorts, but also of fencing sorts helps you understand the evolution of the fencing technique, uh, fencing practice, and fencing context. You can clearly see when a sword is the product of a skilled artisan and an elite product, and when a sword is actually uh, the son of the first or second industrial revolution. It clearly shows. Uh, you can see what the mentality of the master was. Um, you, you can uh, see which aspects of the swordsmanship were emphasized, emphasized uh, in the practice sword, in the foil of the time. I am a, a small sword, um, a, a small sword uh, practitioner and teacher, and one aspect of uh, uh, period swords that is to be understood, in my opinion, is the fact that the fighting small swords and triangular blade, the hollow blades, or in Italy more often uh, hexagonal or uh, uh, anyway sharp blades, whereas foils tended to have rectangular blades. We, we, today we should understand that the masters all the time preferred to teach with uh, what we would now consider the foil blades. So the study of uh, ancient and all sorts is a valuable tool as well as uh, modern fencing as well as written sources uh, the, uh, these are three aspects of the same uh, discipline and thank you uh, carlo i would like to ask you one final question as i mentioned we here on this show tradition very important we uh, also finished with a traditional question can you tell us maybe about some books which you are reading right now? Maybe something you can tell our readers about, some recommendation? Yes, um, I'm reading uh, La Scherma di Spada by Jean-Joseph Renaud, 
translated by Italo Manusardi. Uh, it is a, a text on, uh, on the subject of uh, French epée fencing, and I'm also reading uh, The French Revolution, Uh, 1789 up to 1799 by uh, Michel Vauvel. Uh, this is a purely historical text and it deals very well with the uh, specific uh, phases of the French Revolution uh, up until um, the, passage, the passage to the Napoleonic era. Um, And I'm also reading the catalog of the Stibert Museum, which deals with the um, side swords uh, that are kept inside the uh, Stibert Museum. And uh, these are the books that are on my desk uh, at, the, at the moment. Uh, but I have also been reading Um, of course, uh, philosophical texts, uh, because uh, my, my job is to uh, teach philosophy. So um, I can recommend the uh, manual by Epitteto, uh, which is a short text, but very, um, very interesting. Uh, and... Uh, Lately, I've been uh, reading some essays by David Hume, who is always interesting. And uh, as far as history goes, um, a friend of mine, uh, Cosimo Cerardi, has written uh, The Roots of Scientific Communism, which deals with the origins of the uh, Communist Party and the communist ideology um, in, the, in the 19th uh, century. Thank you for uh, this answer. It's uh, making me feel uh, that I am not very smart, but uh, that is okay. Very often I have guests here who are smarter than me. This is normal on this show. Uh, but I would like to thank you for being here with us, Carlo. And when you finish your next book, which you said you are working on the next book, you are, of course, welcome here again. Thank you very much, Boris. It has been a pleasure, and you, uh, you are a real gentleman. You treated me uh, better, than, uh, better than my students do, and uh, better than my professors did. You are a, a real gentleman. Thank you, Carlo.